Welcome to the Insecurity Project Podcast. Most people think the best you can do with insecurity is mask it, manage it, or medicate. I'm convinced this is a problem that can be solved for good, and that's what this show is all about. Join me for weekly 10-minute Tuesday episodes, live coaching demonstrations, and world-class interviews on the subject of overcoming insecurity. Now on to today's show. Well, hello again, friends. You're on the Insecurity Project with Jamin. Today, my guest is Michael Hanrahan. Michael is the founder and owner of Publish Publish Central. So as a a writer myself, uh, you know, going through the process of putting out work and finding my voice, you know, it was a massive journey into overcoming insecurity. So I'm super keen to talk to Michael about, first of all, his own experience with overcoming insecurity. Uh, and then what he notices with authors, with people who are have this idea they'd like to say something and where they get stuck in that journey as they confront their own inner demons around this. So, Michael, it's a real privilege to have you on the show. Thanks for your time this morning. Great. Thanks for having me, James. It's good to be here. So as with all my guests, I'm, I'm fascinated by where it began for you and, and particularly the impact your parents had on your sense of self uh, growing up. So, so tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in your family and the role your parents played in, uh, in your self-esteem as a young man. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in a very close family, very loving family. Um, I've, myself and two sisters. Um, I don't think I ever heard the term self-esteem when I was younger, but um, we had very, very supportive parents. Um, they were very much of the, you know, we'll support you, whatever you want to do kind of thing. Um, the two values I got instilled in me most when I was younger were education and hard work. Okay. So um, that was more, more so, I think, than, you know, success, you know, make money and, you know, go and take over the world kind of thing. Um, so we had a, an unusual family circumstance. I dealt was dealing with two major health issues in the family when I was growing up. So my dad had heart problems from the time I was in grade three. And I have a sister who's got significant intellectual disabilities. So I think that certainly affected me. Well, I know that affected me and how I saw the world growing up. Um, and it certainly affected, you know, dealing with my parents and that kind of thing. So um, just, growing up, yeah. Just, just on that, can you tell us a bit about how how that shaped your view of the world, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember from a very young age feeling like a bit of an outsider. Mm. So I remember going into school like, you know, your, you know, grade five, grade six, you know, year seven, whatever you are, going into school and like all my mates would be like, oh, I went to the footy on the weekend or I went to a movie on the weekend. I'd be like, yeah, I spent the weekend in a hospital. Mm. So um, me and my younger sister talk about this a lot. We know the effect it had on us. It's my older sister who's got the problems. So um, I very much grew up feeling like an oldest child in the family, even though I actually wasn't. So in terms of responsibility and that kind of thing, that was kind of my role. Um, so I think that's had a significant impact on me throughout my whole life in terms of feeling like a little bit of an outsider. And mm. I know I know just seeing the world a little bit differently from other people in terms of what success means and what's important in life. Mm. Yeah, wow. Oh, that's interesting. Thank, thank you for sharing. Um, I cut you off. I'm not sure if there was that you were going to lead into something else about your experience uh, growing up or whether you'd finish that thought. No, I think I'd probably finish that thought. Mm, okay. Uh, so did your, were your parents confident people, do you think? Were they uh, secure people or what did you observe about what they thought about themselves? 
Um, yeah, they, they certainly were. Um, my dad very much was. He was, despite having health issues, was very successful in his, um, I don't know, career is not the right word, but in his life. He was a, he was a writer, so saying career is a bit generous, but um, he, he was a university lecturer and a, um, a writer on the side, like most writers, he had a, he had a day job as well. Um, as I was growing up, I saw him publish books. He was um, the head of literature at RMIT for a while. He was a magazine editor. Um, he was on uh, the ABC 774 or 3LO as it was back then um, as the book guy. So he had a weekly book program. So I saw him doing all that sort of stuff growing up. Um, so that's that was kind of my, I know, model of success, I guess you'd mm. say. He, he lived, um, uh, you know, his life was spent out in the study at the side of the house. So he'd, you know, as a typical writer, he'd write till two in the morning and all that kind of thing. And he'd have, he'd have a lock on the door that he'd lock from the inside. And you could, you could look out to the study and see if the door was locked or not. And you'd see that it was locked and like, okay, dad's working. I'll leave him alone. So wow. um, growing up, that was what I was taught was important. Like, like we didn't have fancy cars and lots of money and that kind of thing. So that's what I believed was important when I was growing up. Mm. Yeah, well, okay. So tell us a bit about your your journey into into work, you know, all the way to eventually owning your own business. Um, I, I imagine, you know, it, it didn't all just happen for you. Uh, t- tell us a bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah, it's certainly it's a um it's a journey that started very young. Like I say, I I didn't know what a nine to five job was when I was a kid. Like say dad used to be out in the study, um, you know, working out there, and I thought that's what grown-ups did kind of thing when I was younger. So I'm, I'm, I always kind of had dreams of running my own show, doing my own thing. Mm. Um, I got my first paid writing gig when I was 15 years old. So dad, mm. you know, had me involved with, you know, people hanging out in the house with writers and editors and publishers and all that kind of thing. So he was working on a book about, uh, it was a, it was a, I think it was a tourism book. It was a long time ago now, but I think it was a tourism book about Australia and he was writing the chapter about Melbourne and he wanted me to write the section about sports. So I got my first writing, paid writing gig at 15. Yeah. Um, used to, um, back before there was even faxes, Dad used to have to submit articles to the age, that kind of thing. So we'd get in the car in the middle of the night and he'd literally be typing up in his old typewriter and jump in the car and drive in at two in the morning and submit his articles the next day, that kind of thing. Um, so I, like so I grew up around all that kind of stuff. I went on to do a writing and editing degree at university um, with the with the you know aim and goal of becoming a writer. I thought, oh yeah, I'll do the same thing as dad. That looks like so much fun. Um, when I did the course, I actually really enjoyed the editing side of it. So editing is obviously a subject in the in that course, and I really enjoyed that. And it also very much looked like editing was a better way to earn a living than trying to be a writer. Okay. Um, so I so I completed my writing and editing degree. Um, started looking for work. I did what a lot of people do at the start of their careers. So I was like uh, 2021 20, or whatever it was at the time, um, applying for any kind of job in the industry. So I was applying for editing jobs, but at the same time, I was also applying for sales jobs, you know, warehouse jobs, anything that would get me a foot in the door with the publishing business. Um, then I got, uh, I'll never forget this day, my sister, um, uh, I found an ad in the, uh, the publishing newsletter. They had a publishing newsletter, a weekly newsletter where they advertised jobs. And there was this job that just sounded perfect for me, absolutely perfect. And I showed it to my sister and she said, this ad may as well say we're looking for Michael Hanrahan. It was <laughs> that suited to me. It was just perfect. Wow. Um, so that was with a small company called Writebooks. Um, I got the job. Um, so it was as a trainee editor. So I took that job, loved it. It was a small publishing company. There were only about five of us there altogether. Um, did that for three and a half years. 
Um, the fabulous thing about a small publishing company or any small business is you get to see all aspects of it. You get to, you know, I'd, I'd unpack books, I'd talk to the printer, I'd do all aspects of the process. But then there's also, there's nowhere to go. So you can't have a 15-year career in a publishing company with five people. So um, I started, um, you know, thinking about what was next for me. I wanted to move on to a larger publishing company. Um, I had a very, very good relationship with my boss at the time. His name was Jeff, brilliant guy. So I actually sat down with him, was totally honest, told him what I was wanting to do. And he said, look, frankly, Michael, if you stay here, you're going to be, still be doing the same things in five years' time. So I totally understand if you want to move on. Um, so my plan was I actually quit Writebooks and I was going to go backpacking around Europe for four months and then come back and look for a job at a major publisher. But what happened, uh, so I was about 23, 24, whatever I was at this stage, um, literally, so I'd quit Writebooks and then literally a couple of days before I got on the plane, Writebooks got taken over by John Wiley and Sons. So I was like, oh my God, I just missed my chance to work at John Wiley and Sons. <laughs> But Jeff, being an absolutely fantastic boss, hadn't told them that I'd quit. So, <laughs> uh, so I actually got to go overseas for four months and then come back and have a job as, at John Wiley and Sons, oh, yeah. which was just, just amazing. Yeah. So, um, so I did that. Um, I was there for three and a half years, started off there as an editor and production coordinator. So that's the person who manages the printing and all that side of things. Um, ended up as managing editor there. Um, same sort of situation at the end of three and a half years. It's like, okay, what's next? Um, there's, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked in a big company, Damon, but there's all the, you know, all the corporate stuff that you just don't enjoy. You know, you spend all your time in meetings and all these plans that never happen and all that kind of stuff. I was getting a little bit fed up with it. So I thought, okay, time to move on again. Um, went for a job interview at Penguin, uh, for the senior editor there, which is basically the same position as managing editor, which I was, um, disliked the interview so much. Like I went into the interview, I was like, oh my God, this place is going to be exactly like Wiley. Um, I rang my partner, Anna, from the foyer of Penguin and said, I'm leaving to start my own business. Hmm. Um, I got offered a job by Penguin, turned it down, um, started off as a freelance editor. So I was a freelance editor for about 10 years. Um, absolutely loved it. It was me alone in a room with the cat and a manuscript. I could go eight hours in a day without talking to a single person, which I loved. Um, then, um, then I went and did uh, KPI, of course, you're very familiar with. So what started happening was as the publishing industry, publishing industry changed, um, I noticed my work dropping off. So the work I was doing for major clients was starting to drop off and my self-publishing work was starting to increase without me trying to, to go that way. So I went and did KPI, um, came out of that with a very clear focus on doing self-publishing for small business. Um, did that for about three years under the company named Michael Hanrahan Publishing. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we rebranded to Publish Central. So that's, and that's where we are now. We do about 30, 35 books a year. Um, we work with mostly authors like yourself who are writing a book to, to promote their business, build their profile and that kind of thing. So, um, so that's where we are today. We've got a team of, we've got about, regularly, we've got three editors and a team of typesetters we use, a couple of cover designers. Um, and we can kind of, you know, grow and shrink the team as we need according to how busy we are. Yeah, well, uh, for those who are not familiar with the KPI program, that's the key person of influence business accelerator with Dent Global and, and both that's probably how we how we met each other. Um, life changing for both of us, no doubt. Uh, so so I mean that's the the mechanics and the the overview of how you got to where you were. I wonder yep. were there times along the way where your own beliefs about whether you were good enough, whether you had work took, whether you were able to be successful, were there any times you were aware of being limited by your own insecurity on that journey? 
Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So um, the reason I mentioned that the transitions was from Mike Land and Publishing to Publish Central was I really struggled with just, that. Sorry, just something there. I think your microphone's rubbing on your collar a little oh, bit. Oh, is it? Just, just getting okay. a bit of um, uh, some, yeah, some noise every every time you talk. So I didn't want right. to be distracted and the yeah. audience distracted. Yeah, that's that. that better? Cool, thank you. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Um, so do I need to take a break or anything before I start again? No, 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 that's fine. Ca- carry on. Okay, um, so the reason I mentioned the transition from Mike Lander and Publishing to Publish Central was that I, I had real problems with that. Um, so that was about two years ago. Um, honestly, I pretty much had a, a breakdown over it. Um, I'd been doing what so many entrepreneurs do and pushing myself and pushing myself and pushing myself you know, working, you know, working the crazy hours and it, it just builds slowly and, um, you know, it's kind of insidious and it sneaks up on you. And um, I think for me, it was very much, I've got to prove myself that I can get to that level kind of thing. Like, you know, it was taking the business to the next level. Um, very much for me, part of that was, which I didn't know at the time, was that I'd started to um, wrap up my whole sense of who I was in the business. So I had to make the business successful to, you know, to prove that I was awesome and that I could, you know, function at this level. So a lot of people I knew were running these businesses that were at this level that I wanted to get to. And I, um, over the course of a couple of months, pretty much, like say, drove myself into the ground trying to to get it all working. Mm. Um, That was not a fun experience and unfortunately a very common one these days. Mm. Um, So uh, even to the point where I thought about pulling the plug on the whole thing, Mm. Um, and that was when it was, you know, a few months away from actually launching this whole changeover. So we'd spent, we'd spent a lot of money on the website, you know, $30,000 on a new website and all this, and it was all ready to go. And I was, you know, oh my God, what if it doesn't work? What am I doing? All, all the usual, yeah. you know, fears and doubts people have going through those sorts of stages. So yeah, that was, um, that was a really tough time. And like I say, probably a not uncommon journey for, you know, taking any big mm. step in your life. I would, I would agree. I would say it's it's almost inevitable when you step out and step up and you have an idea and you think it's good, but then the execution of that, uh, I think it's inevitable that you come face facing into your, your deepest fears about yourself. That was certainly true for me when I first decided I was going to write a book. That was that was the moment I kind of discovered, oh, my goodness, there's this monster lurking underneath the surface taunting me about whether I've got what it takes. And I've never known that before because I've never taken this level of risk before, but here we are. And, and I knew, um, you know, if I didn't work out how to solve that, then I would shrink back. Um, as I'm sure most people do, I'm not most, I'm, I'm sure many people do. I'm sure many people have an experience of this idea to do something meaningful and something central to what they would like and what they think would work. But in the process of, of executing on that, when it gets really hard and insecurity is triggered, um, I, I wonder if a lot of people actually don't find a way through and end up back working for the man somewhere, back pretending to be happy in the nine to five um, so, so you found it through. You found a way through. So I'm fascinated by what you learned about yourself, what you learned about insecurity, uh, and and what worked for you in order to actually survive that that transition. So yeah, I found a way through after I literally took three months off. I got myself to that bad estate. I was pretty wow. much non-functioning. So um, it was, and that was after like say a slow build up of over a couple of years of being like, yeah, this is fine. We're working towards this. But then when it was just around the corner, 
Um, I like you say this this stuff rears its ugly head, and you're like, oh my god, I don't know if I can do this. Mm. Um, in terms of actually getting through it, um, one of the things I did, which is very important, was I, I got some help. I started seeing a mm. counselor, so that helped a lot. Um, started uh, talking about things with people, so um, you know, my partner Anna and I are very close, and my sister and I are very close, so. Um, didn't realize how much I wasn't getting help until I really, really needed it. So yeah. I got some help from, from the people close to me. Um, the, the coming to the slow realization that it actually doesn't matter if the whole thing falls on its face. Um, I think that's a very important step. So, um, you know, the situation for us was, I mean, obviously financially it had hurt, it, had, it wouldn't mm. be a lot of fun, but we weren't going to end up on the street. You know, mm. we weren't going to lose the house. None of that was going to happen. Even if I, you know, did this business changeover, took to the next level and a month, you know, a month later, it all went totally pear-shaped and everybody said, what on earth have you done? Mm. Um, you know, none of that would have been disastrous. So coming to that realisation, I think, was very, very important. Um, the support of people close to me is very important. So again, my partner, Anna, um, I think one of my big fears was as Michael Hanrahan publishing will going really, really well, like things were motoring along quite nicely. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is all working so well. Why am I changing anything? So, you know, Anna was like very much, you know, no, no, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, the business will change over and all our clients will stay and all that kind of thing, which is of course exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I think another thing that you, you come to realize when you go through that sort of stuff, um, so I started, you know, reading about it and doing my homework on how I was feeling because that's, you know, like a lot of people do. You sort of go, okay, hang on, what's happened to me? You know, I've fallen in this massive hole. I've got to figure my way out. And you start to realise that it's totally, you know, not, I mean, normal's not the word, but it's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and you, you read about, um, you know, I've heard you talking in one of the earlier podcasts about, you know, Michael Jordan dealing with his insecurity issues. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Nicole Kidman, apparently, I read something about her. And, you know, all these really successful people you read about, and they say, oh, my God, you know, Nicole Kidman said, oh, my God, I nearly had a, a breakdown before starting the first day of a new movie kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, that happens to these people as well. And I once, um, uh, I read an article about Paul McCartney saying that he still gets nervous when a new song comes out. And it's like, you know, Paul McCartney doesn't, you know, if Paul McCartney deals with this issue as well, then everybody's going to. So I think that's a major realisation as well, realising that you're not alone. And that, yeah. you know, and once I started, I also, you know, told some people close to me, even told some of our clients, look, I need some time off to, to deal with some personal issues. One thing you realise is as soon as you start talking to people like this, it is out there a lot. Um, you know, plenty of people said to me, oh, I went through this a few years ago, or, mm. you know, one guy said, oh, my brother's dealing with this right now. Another one of our clients said, my husband's off work for three months right now. So it really is, unfortunately, quite common. And I know, obviously, with what you do is trying to help people deal with it. So. Mm. I, I think people imagine their problems are really complicated and unique. And then, yeah, you go mm. through it and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm not special. This is a, yeah. this is a universal issue at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll come face to face with the things we fear about ourselves. And it's often mm. because we're doing the right things, we've, we've stepped out and we're trying something. Um, so, yeah, I think it is a very important conversation to create an idea that yeah, this, is, this is part of what it means to become an adult and to mm. understand who you are and how you function in the world. And at some point, if you don't work out how to detach who you are from what you do, then mm. your world is so vulnerable because if yeah. what you do doesn't work, then it's so personal and so confronting, mm. it, it will destroy you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of your your mental health now and your ability to stay sharp and, and keep mm. growing as a person, as a business owner and keep doing good work in the world, 
uh, how important are, are rituals and practices, you know, that are, that are built into your schedule to, to keep you healthy and happy? Yeah, they've become really important over the last couple of years. So obviously after, you know, what happened a few years ago, I was like, okay, I can't do that to myself again. <laughs> um, I think, I think um, you know, COVID obviously added to all that. Um, we're in Melbourne, so obviously we had that extended lockdown. And that was, yeah, that was pretty hard mentally as well. So um, I did make a few changes to my life last year, um, which have really, really helped and have been very important. So um, one of them was I started meditating, um, which, to be honest, I used to think was a bit of a fad. And, you know, because everybody's raving about these days, I'm like, oh, God, seriously, you know, it's just the latest (laughs) craze. And then, um, you know, like I say, once you've had problems, you start to think, okay, well, I'm open to anything to try and sort, sort this out. So I thought I'll give it a try. And I do that um, every day now. I get up at six o'clock. Um, I used to get up at six o'clock and be at my computer at 6.30. Uh-huh. Um, now I get up at six o'clock and there's a park near us. It's got a running track around the outside of it. That's one kilometre long. Um, I go there and I do three kilometres and then I sit and meditate for 10 minutes and then I come home again. Hmm. And that's that's made an amazing difference. So um, the other thing that suffered when my mental health suffered was my physical health. Mm. um which which go hand in hand i'm sure so i you know started to get lethargic and i was unfit and and all those usual things so you know fixing the physical side of things has certainly helped and that's still i'm still on that you know on that journey for lack of a better term um so that's been really important um the other thing that's been really important for us in the business is just getting control of the business more Mm. um so you know um you know just strategies within the business to make sure that we're in control of things um I'd fallen into a habit, which I didn't realize at the time, but because of the insecurities of working to what our client schedules were and that kind of thing. So, you know, try to fit in with everybody else. It's like, oh my God, I've got to get this client. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And that was causing problems within the business. Mm. So um, addressing from the, from the business side of point of view, addressing all of those sorts of things, um, that's all made a very big difference as well. But yeah, from the personal side of it, just all the usual stuff you'd expect, which again, sound like cliches, but they're cliches because they work. Um, meditation, <laughs> exercise, trying to sleep better. Um, you know, last year, obviously in Melbourne, especially again, we couldn't go out that much. So um, Anna and I are making a real effort this year to, you know, just make sure we go out during the week mm-hmm. and do stuff because, you know, last year was, you know, being able to go out for one hour a day and only to exercise and go to the supermarket was absolutely terrible. So um but then if you come out of that situation and you don't take advantage of it, then then what's the difference? So um, Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So we're very much making sure we make an effort to, you know, go and have some fun because there wasn't a lot of fun to be had last year. Mm. I I just I'm very grateful for this conversation and the way you're talking about it because I think a lot of people can relate to this idea of meditations for super people or for wankers or for you know weirdos or hippies or you yeah. know there's just this it's just like oh man really i got to meditate um i yeah. got to exercise or the nutrition's mm. important but you kind of realize yeah. that that stuff really is like i i love um the meds acronym and i can't think of the psychologist a melbourne-based psychologist who introduced this idea to me but but she said basically you know, are you taking your meds for mental health, which is which is just a baseline of mental health and it's mindfulness mm. or some kind of practice where you are still, where you pause, where you think about your thinking, where you get out of your head. Yeah. Um, yep. Exercise. Are you doing something physical? Mind and body are a mm. system. That, that stuff does matter. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, diet, what, what you put in your body actually also impacts how you feel about a whole bunch of things uh, and, and sleep. You know, culturally not that 
celebrated, but a central no. part of mental health. So if yeah. you're not taking your meds, then your, your baseline is mm. so far, you're so far below baseline. It's very difficult to be in anything other than survival mode when it comes to yeah. your health. So uh, yeah, yeah, it really is par for the course in today's mm. world to be integrating yeah. those things as rituals in. Yeah. So, yeah. I think not only is, sorry, I think only is sleep not celebrated. I think it goes the other way. Like you're actually glorified if you say, oh, I was, was working until 2 a.m. I was, you know, yeah. I got four hours sleep last night. That's all, you know, that, you know, I hate the term, but the hustle culture. And um, so I think, you know, it's, um, you know, gone, gone way, way, way too far the other way of glorifying all that side of things. Yeah. I have a lot of fun with that. Like I, I literally have a, have a nap scheduled, a 90-minute nap scheduled in to my calendar at 2.30 every day. And, you know, nice. all, my friends, all my friends know about it and, yeah. and make great fun about it. But I, I love being the weirdo who has a nap. And, yeah. and, and every, every day that my head hits the pillow, and I've got a bunch of sleep aids, so I've got a, a cricket ball that I smell, which just gets me out of my head and I think about cricket and and I just yeah. lulled into the rhythms of Glenn McGrath bowling line. Yeah. I've got this yeah. little bedside fan. I've got an eye mask Fantastic. on my mouth guard. I've got my nice pillow. And every yeah. time my head hits the pillow when I'm after an I go, I just love my life. And yeah. it's just it's such a nice thing. But 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 the point yeah. is it's you know, my friends think I'm an absolute weirdo and I, I mm. really enjoy being a weirdo. I just yeah. I have a lot of fun being a bit different around that. Uh, but yep. it's not popular. Taking rest no. is not a popular yeah. thing. No, and, it's and, not. And I really think that's a big, the reason that's such a big deal is I think it's an insecurity issue as well because mm. it's so uh, like our identity is so often tied with what we do. So the moment you're not doing, then then it's like, well, how do I show that I have value and worth apart from what I can produce or what I can do? So sitting still, firstly, mm. it, it means I got no nothing to show for myself, and secondly, yeah. it creates these gaps, and gaps create room for thinking and for reflecting yes. things that aren't right, and yeah. these unresolved fears come to the surface. Whereas if you cram your mm. life so full of stuff, then you can run and hide from those things much more easily. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. I think that's partly what drove my working too hard was to overcome my concerns about you know if this wouldn't work it's like if you just put your head into it yeah. work like a lunatic you don't have to think about it so yeah yeah it's clever mm. um all right so you're you're a writer you're in the industry um have you come across books that have been particularly useful for you on on this subject of insecurity and mental health Yes, yeah, so I've come across a few. The one I read most recently, it's not specifically about insecurity and mental health, but it's kind of got elements of it. Um, Atomic Habits, um, okay. which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Um, it's been, been very popular lately. So, um, yeah, I found that really helpful. So, like I say, it's not specifically about self-esteem mm. and that kind of thing, but where I found it helpful was so talking about the, you know, bringing exercise into your life, you know, mindfulness and all that kind of thing. It's about making those changes to your routine and all that um, so that you can bring those things into your life. So mm. um, I've, I did find that book really, really helpful. Um, again, same sort of thing. I hadn't planned to read it, but I just saw it everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Again, with the, with the attitude of, well, I've got myself into a hole. Clearly what I was doing wasn't working. It's time mm. to start considering every solution. Mm. So I grabbed a copy of it and read it. And that, that book definitely helped me a lot. Mm. Yeah, highly recommend it. Oh, great. Cool. Anything else that's yeah. uh, that comes to mind or that's... Yeah, so The Happiness Trap as well, okay. which um, I'm sure you're familiar with that one as well. So mm. that's, um, 
that's um, just uh, just kind of general, you know, approach to life of um, how it's so easy to make yourself unhappy trying to make yourself happy. So, mm. you know, we're all, you know, we're all kind of caught up in, you know, I've got to be happy 24 hours a day or I'm doing something wrong. Mm. And it's about that's actually going to make you unhappy trying to do that. So I mm. found that one very useful as well. Mm. Um, I had a really great conversation with my brother. Brother-in-law is actually a, a psychiatric nurse, and he, you know, they, they, we, we're pretty good mates. And I talked to him a lot about this kind of stuff when I was having problems. And uh, and he was saying, you know, part of the problem is that we all expect that we're meant to be happy all day every day, and if we're not, we think there's something wrong. And I think mm. there's there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, it's an interesting point you make. Um, almost every one of my clients is absolutely shocked when I, when I tell them that I'm not happy all the time. Um, mm. But it's I think it's such a really important distinction about being human is to yeah. realize that we have a full range of emotion, um, and if you want joy and ecstasy and excitement and flow, you've also got to be prepared mm. for sadness and discouragement and frustration and disappointment, yeah. and that's all part of the deal. So. Mm. Um, Again, I, I, like I think happiness is more culturally rewarded than sadness is. So yeah. it's it's uh, if you're a happy person, well, you must have everything together. If you're a sad person, well, who knows what's going on with you? So I think, again, yeah. it, it creates some, there's some insecurity that, that drives that. But yeah, yeah definitely useful, useful to consider that a range of emotion is a really healthy thing. Mm. Uh, all right, two very good book suggestions. I love that. So, um, so, so tell us about what you see in aspiring authors and even authors who've already published before. Um, how, how do you see insecurity getting in the way of people who are trying to speak, trying to find their voice and, and bring something relevant that others are going to read? This is definitely a major problem that we come across all the time in publishing. So, um, it happens, it crops up in a number of stages in the publishing process. Um, the first is um, authors who can't finish their manuscripts. So the initial writing stage, they just don't get finished because they, um, you know, they want to show it to 37 different people. And then one person said, oh, I think you should rewrite chapter seven. So they rewrite chapter seven. And then another person said, I don't like that diagram. So they changed that diagram. Right. And it's all about um, people trying to, thinking that they're, to write their book, they need to make everyone happy. And, of course, you're mm. never going to do that. And that that comes from the the attitude of, which is very, very common, I have this conversation with authors all the time, the who am I to write a book? Mm. So it's like I'm, you know, I, I've written my own book about how to publish a book and there are at least three or four others out there on that that are really good. Um, and so it's like, well, who am I to write the next one? Well, the answer to that is no one's got my experiences, no one's got my background, nobody's got mm. my take on it. So even if, you know, technically I talk about the same processes, it's not going to be the same book. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's a very, very common uh, problem for authors, you know, before they send us a manuscript. Um, the other time it rears its head, I've got an author at the moment, of course I won't name her, but um, uh, not sending her manuscript back because she's at the review stage and the same process again, she showed it to a few people and has gotten really, really stuck because someone gave her a different opinion on something. Mm. So now suddenly she's like, oh, my God, I haven't made that person happy. But you mm. can't try and make every single person read your book happy. So I often say to authors right early on, right at the start, you've got to be prepared for some people not to like your book. Mm. Um, if you're not prepared for that, you can't put it out there because it's going to happen. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody's going to think it's the best book ever written. So what you've got to be confident on is, do you know your stuff? Um, have you written the best book that you can? Have you put the effort in? And if the answer to that is yes, then you're ready to go. 
um, because it's, you know, it's, it's not going to make everybody happy. And the other, the other time the fear really comes out is once the book's actually printed and lands on people's desks yep. and they're like, oh my God, yeah, you've probably been through this yourself, um, as have I. Um, uh, I've got to send this to people now. Uh, they're going to ring me up and tell me it's awesome or they're going to ring me up and tell me it's rubbish. Um, so that often holds a lot of authors back, even once they've got through the writing publishing, writing process, publishing process, once now, what if I've missed something? What if I've made a mistake? What if I didn't cover this major topic that I should have? What if everything? Um, it is, it's, you know, it's the old imposter syndrome. It's, it's very, very common in writing and publishing. I've spoken to many authors who comes out. Uh, I, I, the internet just broke up a little bit with that, which is disappointing. I, I'm just uh, trying to rectify that now. Sorry if you're listening and uh, this is breaking up. Uh, hopefully that's improved. Are you you're still there, Michael? Yep, I'm here. We're all good, I think. All right, great. Yeah, I, we got we got what you're saying there. That's it's very interesting. I think I think for me the the judgment piece was one of the really big fears that I was mindful of. It's like I'm about to put an opinion out there. I'm about to say some things, and now other people are going to have an opinion about my opinion. That's that's interesting. So now I'm kind of I feel exposed. I feel like. Uh, how yes. am I going to insulate myself against the judgment that will come? Because in order that, in order to put something out, you, you're going to say something that's different. If it's the same, well, well, you know, it's already been said. So to write a book, you're putting your ideas out there, which means, all right, you're just opening yourself up for criticism for uh, people who don't agree, for people mm-hmm. who get upset. And so I realized I hadn't done the internal work to protect me from that. Um, so I got stuck very early on because like that's that's too that's too scary. You'll be too vulnerable. You won't cope mm-hmm. if someone doesn't like this. And so I had to go back and do some work around my own belief system about myself and find ways of actually internalizing my value and worth rather than needing it outside myself before I could then go again. So I'd imagine it'd be the same. I reckon a lot of authors would get through the process and and have manuscripts. That are, that are never submitted, um, book ideas yes. that are great that just yeah, never sure. see the light of day because yeah, it's uh, it's all a bit too scary. Yeah, definitely. I, I know a few friends personally who um, who've said to me they're going to send me their book when they finish it, and I, every time I see them, it's like the last <laughs> ten years, how's your book going? Oh, it's nearly finished. How's your book going? Oh, it's nearly finished. So, yeah, the, the world o- world over is filled with um, unfinished manuscripts and bottom drawers. So. Mm. Yeah, and, and definitely that fear is one of the main reasons. Yeah, so interesting. And mm. and I think, again, why, so, why this is such an important subject because that's not just bad for the author, um, that's bad for the world. You know, mm. there are beautiful ideas that have not been spoken, that have not been written, yes. that have not been shared, and so yeah. we are the poorer for that. Um, and, yeah, so for, for those authors to solve insecurity then means they can show up and, and bring their work yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, is there anything, any other ways you've noticed that that insecurity 
uh, impacts the quality of work a writer does or you know whether do you find people kind of pulling back from saying what they really want to say for, for fear of kind of well I don't want to offend this person I can't actually say it that strongly or I'd need to be a bit careful here and say so they they undermine the strength of their voice through insecurity um I don't think that happens so often I think it's more like I one thing we find um happens all day every day like just about every manuscript I get it's better than the author thinks it is oh, wow. so um yeah which is really fascinating so um so I actually don't think it affects the quality of the work. I think it's more in actually getting the work out there. I see. So, That's um, interesting. Most people, here's the thing, most people who do get to the point of writing a book, they do know their stuff mm. and they do write a good book. I mean, obviously mm. we get the occasional book that's just, just, just rubbish, but, um, <laughs> you know, most of the time, you know, people intellectually know they're good at this. They know yeah, they can yeah. do it. It's, you know, so they write a good book, um, but then it's the it's the hanging on to it before it comes to us. There's various stages where they can kind of hang on to it at their end for an extra week or two. Oh, I'm still reading it. I want to read it one more time, that kind of thing. So that I think that's where more where it shows up. I don't think it's in the quality of the work. I have, um, I have this conversation with authors all the time. They're almost apologetic sending me the manuscript. They send to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. It needs a lot of work. And so I look over it. I ring them up a couple of days and I go, this is actually really good. And they say, oh, yeah. really? It's like, yeah, it is. Yeah, wow. Um, so that's it, that's you know, really fascinating to hear you say that. It is, isn't it? It's very common. It's very, very common. Um, and I, I found actually the closest I've been through in this, I mean, I wrote a book about, um, like I mentioned, wrote a book about publishing a book. Um, I was, you know, I was totally confident in that. I'd had that book in my head for years. I've been writing since I was 15. I had no concerns about, about writing. Um, mm. I went through this experience a little bit with the website. So that mm. was similar. Like our, when we changed the business over, we launched a whole new website, heaps of content on, to, on there. And I found that a really interesting experience so I thought, now I know how our authors feel. I'm about to put out all this content into the world. What if we, you know, we promote it and that kind of thing and people start ringing up saying, this is rubbish. What did I pay <laughs> you for this for? So, yeah, yeah, wow. um, so I can relate to that. Um, it's, it is very, very common. Um, I do a lot of work with Andrew Griffiths, who, who I know you know of. Mm. Um, we, we talk about this issue all the time and we're actually, you know, we're planning on preparing some content around it. It's such mm. an issue for people. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. So, what, is there anything you'd say to the people who've got those manuscripts at home and who are sitting on an idea and and do dream of actually writing their own work? Anything you'd say to them if they're listening? Yeah, absolutely. So, just just the points I kind of mentioned before. Are you confident? You know your stuff. Um, have you put the effort in? Do you think you've written the best book you can? Then it's done. That's mm. the only time it's done. Um, you know, if you if you don't put the effort in, it probably won't be that good. If you don't know your stuff, it probably won't be that good. But if you put the effort in, you know your stuff, um, it's never going to be finished. So our um, our company name uh, is Rough Draft Pty Ltd. And the kind of thinking behind that is everything's always a rough draft. So I, I sent my book to the printer when I wrote my book. And the minute I went to the printer, I was like, oh, there's 10 things in there I want to change. Mm. It's never finished. So yep. if you think, oh, I've got to hang on to it, make it that bit better. Um, it's, then once you've done that bit, then you're going to say, oh, I've thought of something else to add. To it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just never ending. So um, be confident in what you're doing. Um, get it out there. You've, you've got something, what I often say to authors in business is, you've got something unique and valuable to say. And if, you, if you're worried about putting that in a book and if you can't find something unique to say, you've got bigger problems than writing a book. Mm -hmm. So, um, wow. you know, your business, your business is going to be in trouble. So 
Um, you know, if you're writing a book for your business, um, if you've got a successful business, then you've got valuable information for people. So mm. yeah, that's, get it out there. That's, that's lovely. That's, that's great advice. Um, one of the things I love about your work and, and your website, the new website is just the amount of free content that's available, the amount of stuff you put out there for people who are thinking about this, who are in the game, trying to get better at this. You, yeah. you really have some quality stuff out there and, and make such a valuable contribution to this space. So uh, for those who haven't come across your work yet, where's the best place for them to find you and your stuff? Yeah, so just publishcentral.com.au. Um, so there's, like you mentioned, there's a whole free resource section. You don't need to put your email address in or anything like that. It's not a, you know, it's not a marketing campaign or anything like that. Um, there's also our contact details on there. So if anyone wants to give me a call, um, I can give them the pep talk that they need. Um, uh, you know, we, we're happy to chat to anybody about their books. So um, another thing I will say to people is that these fears that I see authors have, they never come true. They, you know, it's again, I relate back to my website. I thought I was going to launch the website and or not I thought, but I feared I was going to launch this website and people would ring me up and tell me it was rubbish. It never happened. Mm. You know, authors think I'm going to put this out there and everybody's going to say my book's terrible. It doesn't happen. You might get the odd bit of criticism. So someone might read and say, I don't agree with what you said on paragraph four, page 27. Mm. Um, of course, that's going to happen. You've just got to deal with it. But, um, you know, most of, you know, and this goes for so many things in life, most of what we're afraid of never actually happens. So. Mm. Oh. I, I say to people all the time, your insecurity is built on a work of fiction. And, mm. and interestingly, it's built on the work, work of fiction of a child. So yeah. um, fear unexamined grows every day, but the more you examine mm. the fear and push through, then you realize it's, it's actually not true. So yeah, that's a great yeah. place to leave the conversation. So mm. um, thank you so much for sharing of your own experience and then of your own wisdom in this industry. It's been a very rich conversation and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people hearing this who are energized and inspired to get back writing and, and to do their work. So thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks for having me, James. It was good fun. All right, we'll leave it there. You've been listening to the Insecurity Project podcast. All you need to solve any problem is the proven framework and someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. If this is your year to be insecurity free, Jump on the insecurityproject.com and begin your journey to become unhindered by getting a free copy of the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity.